Welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. City. It's one of the busiest, most congested cities in the world for traffic. Though New York is known for its extensive public transportation system, more than 50% of people in the metro area commuting to work every day do it by car. And most of those cars run on good old gas. But imagine the city's roadways getting quieter, and maybe the smog dying down. Well, okay. New York is never going to be a quiet utopia. But as alternative fuel vehicle technology catches on, it just might be moving in a healthier direction. For the environment, for our lungs, and maybe even for our wallets. In this edition of Science in the City's summer podcast series, you'll hear a little bit about the future of automobile travel in the 21st century. So electric vehicles certainly were around at the the turn of the century in the 1900s, and we had a resurgence of them in the 1980s, 1990s. I suggest driven a lot by the California mandate uh, for zero-emission vehicles. That's Ann Schlenker of the Center for Transportation Research at Argonne National Laboratory in Illinois. She gave a presentation on the resurrection of the electric car at a conference at New York University's Rudin Center for Transportation Policy, Earlier this summer, the conference was all about alternative fuel vehicles, and I got to have a few words with her after it wrapped up. Schlenker told me how the electric car was on par with the combustible engine in the early 20th century, but it didn't last. Ford's introduction of the Model T pretty much snuffed out the competition. Mass production made internal combustion engine vehicles, which ran on liquid fuel, cheaper, more efficient, and more widely available. That combined with other factors, like a lack of adequate battery power, really stunted the electric car industry. Research on electric vehicles, or EVs as they're known, picked up in the early 60s and 70s due to fuel crises, which brought foreign oil dependence into the national spotlight. But the electric car didn't make a real comeback until the 90s. And even then, battery technology wasn't very good. So that, among other factors, contributed to the downfall of the electric car once again. But... Recently, in the past 10 years, there's been a lot of work on lithium-ion chemistries, so different battery chemistry that has different energy uh, power and density, and hence that technology invention, if you will, really has led to the resurgence, I believe, of electric vehicles again. And you may have noticed that resurgence. Just last December, Chevrolet unveiled the Vault, a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle that's the flagship of the company's comeback. Though the Volt is still only available in a limited capacity, demand is high, and reviews are mostly positive. And it's not the only electric car out there either. Nissan is rolling out its highly anticipated LEAF, a fully electric model this year. And then there's a bunch of EV companies like Coda and Tesla Roadsters 
that most Americans have never heard of. So I would say that we probably have 40-plus uh, manufacturer, car manufacturers that have announced plans for plug-in hybrids and EVs within the next couple of years. So all of the major players are really going to be there. And what's leading this new wave of interest in electric cars is the battery that powers them. The new generation of batteries for electric vehicles are made from a soft metal called lithium, and they're much more efficient than the ones that came before. For full disclosure, Schlenker's Argon Lab helped develop the advanced lithium-ion electrode material that is used in the new Volt. But lithium-ion batteries are really found in most of our advanced consumer electronics today, from laptops to cell phones, iPads and Kindles, and of course, now our cars. And Schlenker says that's a very good thing, because the electric car is good for the Earth. The vision has really been reduction in petroleum uh, dependency as well as greenhouse gas or the environmental footprint from personal transportation as well as from the commercial duty space. But I couldn't help but wonder, how much greener is the electric car? Let's face it, most of us aren't living in a self-sufficient solar house where we can charge our cars with little impact. Heck, most of us in New York aren't even living in a house with a garage where we can plug in at all. And even if we were our cars would still pull energy from a grid that's largely dependent on fossil fuels. So we're not at the optimum, so I'll certainly grant you that. As we reduce petroleum dependency, we have to keep an eye on uh, the greenhouse gas simultaneously. Uh, Plug-in hybrids in particular, it's dependent on what that electric generation looks like. But Schlenker says we're in the early stages. And we're still making progress in greenhouse gas reduction with the electric car. When we move from uh, internal combustion engine and then move over towards a hybrid vehicle, even if it's operating on uh, conventional gasoline, you still have a 22% reduction in petroleum use as well as in greenhouse gas. So that's a win for everybody. And when you move from internal combustion engines to electric, greenhouse gas emissions may be reduced by anywhere from 10 to 90% depending on where your electricity comes from. That's according to a 2009 report from Argonne. Plug-in hybrids, EVs, compressed natural gas, the alcohol fuels, always a win for greenhouse gas or petroleum dependence in comparison to a diesel vehicle or an internal combustion engine with gasoline. So electric cars sound like our ticket to petroleum independence and away from greenhouse gas pollution. But it's important to remember that EVs still have their own issues to work out, Beyond their continued reliance on fossil fuels in the form of coal or natural gas-powered electricity, there's also the question of battery life and what to do with the battery once it's used up. Also, the lithium needed for batteries is still an earth element that needs to be mined, not completely unlike petroleum. So the question of where we're going to be getting our lithium from is another biggie. And lastly, there's the infrastructure problem. We'll have to make pretty sizable investments in things like charging stations and reinforcing our overall grid capacity if any larger-scale shift towards electric vehicles is to be made. But Schlenker says it'll all come in due time. For now, the new electric car is still in its infancy compared to our mature gas guzzlers. And there's still time for all the kinks to be worked out, which she's pretty positive they will be. We really are at a a crux of a change in personal mobility and very exciting to be a part of it. Even though the new electric car hogged the limelight at NYU's Alternative Fuel Vehicle Conference, plug-ins and hybrids were certainly not the only game in town. 
There was also talk of renewable natural gas energy and biofuels, both of which can play a sizable role in reducing our reliance on petroleum. And Bruce Bunting of Oak Ridge, another national lab, but this time in Tennessee, says that's the way it should be. We have to diversify our fuel choices because no technology will single-handedly resolve our petroleum dependence. With economic growth in the world and the linkage between economic growth and energy consumption, we need all the sources. There is no magic bullet that's going to displace petroleum. Petroleum is going to continue to flow until the last drop, and it's going to continue to be priced at the maximum amount that it can be priced at. You're not going to be able to just push it out of the marketplace. Though he sees room for many AFV technologies, Bunting works specifically on advanced biofuels at Oak Ridge. Biofuels are alcohol fuels derived from organic materials, like corn or sugarcane, which means they're renewable resources. They can be mixed with regular petroleum fuels and pumped directly into most of our fuel-based vehicles. And Bunting says it's that last feature that gives biofuels one of their biggest advantages. They work within our existing infrastructure. The whole transportation system in the U.S. is focused on liquid fuels. You go to a service station, you fill your tank, you can drive a long way, you can go anywhere and buy the fuel. So what I'm focusing on is how we can incorporate biofuels into that, that system and maintain the same quality, the same reliability that we currently have in fuels. Ethanol is the most well-known and widely used biofuel in the United States, and it's distilled mostly from corn. Bunting calls ethanol a mature industry because it's been around for a while. It's supported by many state and federal tax incentives and has already been evaluated and re-evaluated many times over. But ethanol isn't going to go much further than it has which is why Bunting's work focuses on advanced biofuels that may be better suited for mass distribution. Because of the concern of food versus fuel, that corn-based ethanol was capped at 15 billion gallons a year, and we're almost to that level. But um, to go beyond that, we need cellulosic ethanol. And cellulosic ethanol is made from things like wood, wood chips, corn stalks, switchgrass, and you can extract the hemicellulose from that cellulosic material and also ferment that and make ethanol. There are already other non-ethanol biofuels out there, like butanol and heavy-mixed alcohols. But Bunting says those aren't very popular. Traditional biodiesel can be found all around the world, too. In the U.S., it's made from soy oil. In Europe, rapeseed oil. And in Canada, canola oil but it's expensive because the vegetable oils it's made from have a very high material cost. So it automatically makes that fuel limited in its potential. That's why there's a lot of interest in making fuel from cheap, abundant resources, like the cellulosic materials Bunting mentioned, which are mostly plant byproducts and non-edible parts of the plant. By distilling and refining materials like wood chips, switchgrass, and lawn clippings, and then converting them into an alcohol fuel that fits into our existing petroleum infrastructure, You could make a big dent in petroleum use through its own mechanisms, says Bunting. And that brings us back to his main point. Well, people don't really think about it, but we use, the United States uses 20 million barrels a day of petroleum. The world uses 80 million barrels a day. That's an almost unbelievable volume. And all around the country, there are 
oil refineries, there are pipelines, there's storage depots, there's truck depots, and then you have service stations. And that infrastructure grew up along with the automobile, along with the highway system. And it's just enormous. And so there's billions and billions of dollars that have been put into that. And it would be nice to continue to utilize both that equipment, the right-of-ways, you know, the pipelines are buried, the tanks are already in place, and also the existing model of operations that result in quality fuel delivered essentially on time anywhere. And not only can biofuels be incorporated into our existing fuel refinery, storage, and transportation infrastructure, they can work in your existing car. Bunding says that although you could design a car that would work best on a particular biofuel, he thinks it's more valuable that fuels be backward compatible. In other words, you can't bring a new fuel out on the market that people that already own a car can't use. It has to be usable by everybody. And the result of that will be that there'll be a slow evolution, a continued adjustment of vehicles and fuels to, to again, maintain low cost, maintain supply. So, if more efficient renewable materials are made into biofuels, which can be easily used in our existing infrastructure and in your own car, we may be able to significantly cut into our need for petroleum. I think people will be looking at alternate alcohols. I think people are looking at making fuel from algae or from sunlight. And people are looking at making fuel from woody biomass. Any of those are going to have a hard time supplying as much petroleum as we use. But just like ethanol supplements 10% of U.S. gasoline, other fuels may in 10 or 15 years also supply 10%. Then when you combine that with efficiency gains and hybrids and alternate fuels that fleets can use, that should reduce petroleum consumption. The takeaway message from all of this is that big changes are ahead. One of the moderators at NYU's Alternative Fuel Vehicle Conference, Richard Castle of the National Research Defense Council, summed it up best. A few years down the road, we may see a completely different kind of car market than what exists today. For the majority of the 20th century, we've made a lot of little decisions about driving. Should I buy a sedan or a compact? Should I get a stick shift or an automatic? But we've rarely questioned what kind of vehicle we'll buy. But maybe the future has room for diversity. 10 to 15 years down the road, you could walk onto a car lot, and depending on how and where you drive, you may want to buy a hybrid, or maybe an electric, or a biodiesel, or an efficient gas-powered car, or maybe something else entirely. This podcast is brought to you by Science and the City, a nonprofit program from the New York Academy of Sciences. A big thank you goes out to NYU's Rudin Center for Transportation Policy and Management for contributing to this podcast. You can find out more about alternative fuel vehicles, from electric cars to biofuels, natural gas, and more. And of course, about the AFV conference itself at nyu.edu. Or you can find the link on our own website at www.scienceandthecity.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more science around New York City soon.